regardless of which school it was, I can guarantee you one thing, that your teacher would give you the occasional test. Yeah, right? Teacher would give you tests, right? And what was the purpose for these tests? Well, the purpose was, first and foremost, for you to evaluate where you're at, right? The teacher would equip you, the teacher would train you if it was a good teacher, and they would give you these tests in hopes that you would pass these tests. Sure, some of you are like, no, not my teacher. They would give me these tests in hopes that I would fail. But we have a good teacher in the Lord, and he gives us tests for specific purposes so that we can evaluate where we're at. And his hope is not that we would fail these tests, but that we would pass these tests. Have you ever been tested by the Lord? Have you ever been tested by the Lord in the same type of, the same category of test? Meaning, he keeps testing you on this specific topic or testing you with this specific sin. And it seems like uh, you're never going to pass this test. And he keeps testing you in this specific area of your life. But we have to remember that he's a good teacher and he's testing us in hopes that we would pass the test in our spiritual lives, that we would be able to move on to the next grade, if you will. And he will not give up on us. He will continue to test us until we pass, which is the title of the teaching. Continued testing, continued testing. If you recall, we've been talking about testing quite a bit because that's what the scriptures have been talking about. When we go back to Joseph and his life and all the tests that he had to walk through. And we know that God was doing that to make his man and ultimately redeem the nation of Israel. But as we discussed last week, now Joseph is the one doing the testing. Likely inspired by God, but nevertheless, it's Joseph doing the testing. And who is he testing? He's testing his brothers. Why? Well, for a lot of the same reasons that God was testing him. There was this necessity for the sins of the brothers, the sons of Israel, to be exposed. Yes, so that they could be restored, but also so that they could be the men that God was calling them to be, because these men would be the men that made up the 12 tribes of Israel. So God, he continues not just to test Joseph, he's going to test Israel in this text, and he's going to continue to test these brothers because he has to make sure they are what he's called them to be. Before we dive into our text, please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would speak to us through this text. Um, God, that you would inspire us, motivate us, um, Lord, that you would give us understanding of, of, of why you, you continued to test this family, uh, Lord, and we would be able to understand why you test us. So, bless this time, in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Genesis chapter 43. Now, to... 
catch you up to speed. Uh, obviously, we were in Genesis chapter 42 last week, and we see Joseph has this encounter with his brothers. His brothers are led to Egypt because of the famine, and Joseph provides bread for them, but he tests them because he doesn't only want to restore them physically, he wants to restore them spiritually. But the tests aren't over. There's more tests to come in this chapter and even the next. Let's read Genesis chapter 43, verse 1. It says, Now the famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass, when they had eaten up the grain, which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. So the famine is severe. It's as severe as God said. Remember, this is going to be uh, seven years of famine. Uh, some suggest they're about two years in. We don't know for sure. But this famine was not only severe, but it was for a pretty lengthy period of time. Seven years. Now, if you remember Israel or Jacob's story, we see that God had blessed him. And he was prosperous for so many years, right? God would bless him. He had his challenges too with, with Laban and with Esau and all these different things. But God continued to prosper Jacob. Now, what do you think Jacob's thinking as he's going through this famine? God, where are you? What happened? You prospered me for my whole entire life. Yeah, there was hard times, but ultimately you prospered me. And now this famine. God, what's going on? Why are you allowing this to happen once you had favor on me? But now it seems that you're challenging me. I'm sure Jacob doesn't really get it. And we get some indication of that from the last chapter. Remember, he says, why are all these things against me? Why are all these things coming against me? Because he doesn't understand that God has a bigger plan and he's using all of these things. Now, they got some food from Egypt, some grain. Uh, they went through all that grain and it says in verse 2 that they had eaten up the grain. So they ate up their supply from Egypt. So now Israel sends his sons. He tells them, hey, we need to go back to Egypt to get some food. Think about this. Remember who's left in Egypt right now? Simeon. He doesn't say, Simeon's back there. We need to go back and get Simeon. No, he says, we're out of food now, so we need to go back to get Egypt. It's almost as if he didn't really care, like he wasn't really concerned about Simeon. This was selfish of Jacob. And we see different texts in his story. There's times where he's selfless, where he puts himself out there to protect his family against Esau. And there's other times where he's extremely selfish. He's being selfish in this setting. It's not Simeon that leads him to send his children back to Egypt. It's the fact that he's out of food. And look what he says, go back, buy us a little food, just a little bit. Because why? He doesn't know how long this famine is going to last. It's not as if God spoke to him and gave him the same vision and clarity as he did Joseph in regards to the years of plenty and the years of famine. It's almost as if Jacob is in the dark. Just go back and get us a little bit more grain. This famine can't last too much longer. Little does he know this famine is going to last a lot longer than he thinks. Genesis chapter 43 Verse 3, but Judah spoke to him saying, the man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with us. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. 
But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Remember, the last direction that Joseph gave the brothers was, hey, if you need more food, the only way I'm going to give you more food is if you bring your younger brother, Benjamin, back. Judah is taking Joseph seriously. He refers to him as the man because he doesn't realize that he's Joseph, obviously. But the point is that Judah knows this guy is a man of his word. And he says, you're not going to see my face again. You're not getting anything from me unless you do what I ask you to do. Bring Benjamin back to Egypt. So he has this dialogue, this conversation with his father. Look at verse 6. And Israel said... Why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you had still another brother? First off, we see the name Israel mentioned. Remember, God gave Jacob the name Israel several passages ago. And we see most of the time Israel is referred to as Jacob. We've talked about this quite a bit, but what it appears to be the last time I believe that Israel, sorry, um, Jacob was called Israel was way back in Genesis chapter 37. When you look at the scriptures and when he's called Israel and when he's called Jacob, it all has to do with faith. When he's operating in faith, as we'll see, though he battles with faith, he's ultimately going to take a step of faith in this text. When he's operating in faith, he's referred to as Israel. And when he's operating in deception or in sin or in anything else, he's referred to as Jacob. It's interesting that God gives us new names, or at least he's going to give us new names in heaven. And we see him often give different people new names as he has encounters with them. We see it with Peter when Jesus says to him, your name is Simon, son of Jonah, you shall be called Cephas, meaning a rock or a stone. This is who you are, but this is who you're going to become. And he's done that with each and every one of us. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul tells us to put off the old man, put off who we used to be, and put on the new man. The new man, amongst other things, is summed up in this. It's a man of faith. It's a woman of faith. When we're walking in faith, we're operating in the new man. Israel, though he struggles in this text... Ultimately, he's going to operate in faith, and that's why I believe he's being called Israel once again. But look what he says in verse 6. I'll reread it. Why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you had still another brother? Look at Israel. He's playing the victim. He's being irrational. Why did you deal so wrongfully with me? How could you wrong me like this? Why did you tell the man that I had another son, my other favored son in the person of Benjamin? Israel being extremely irrational. He's playing the victim. All these things are against me and God. God's got a purpose in this. God, he's still testing Israel. Why? Because Israel still has some issues. He still has this control thing and this deceitful thing. And when he doesn't have control, he gets anxious. He gets worried just as he's becoming worried in this text. See, God isn't through with Israel. He's going to continue to test Israel until he makes him. Which brings me to the first point. 
God tests us until he makes us. God tests us until he makes us. God, we can rest assured that he will continue to test us the rest of our lives until we become the men and women that he's called us to be. Specifically with Israel, as we just discussed and as we've been discussing throughout Genesis, his main issue was deceit. He was always deceiving people. He deceived his father. He deceived Laban. He deceived Esau several times. And we see his kids pick on this, pick up on this as well. But Israel, the reason he deceives is why? Because he wants to have control of things. He deceives different people so that he can maintain control of the situation. So what happens when he doesn't have control of the situation? He loses it. He gets anxious. He gets worried. And in this specific setting, he starts blaming everyone else because he can't control his circumstances. Are you one of those people? Hopefully you're not, but some of you might be, where you have to control everything. You have to control your circumstances. You need to be in control of your life. And if things seem like they're out of control, you get anxious. You get worried. You get a little flustered. And maybe that worry, maybe that anxiety leads you to blame other people for where you're at and what's happening in your circumstances. That's what Jacob's doing here. He wants control, but he doesn't have control. Who has control? God has control. And little does Jacob or Israel know that God has control and he's going to work things, these things out together for Jacob's good. Again, Jacob... His flesh default as he's acting out in anxiety, he's coming to this place of blame. And so often we can do this, we can blame others for the situation we find ourselves in. This is extremely biblical and we see it throughout the text, even from the beginning of the fall, right? Adam and Eve, when God confronted Adam, what did he say? It was the woman that you gave me. He blames it on Eve and God. God, you gave me this woman and she led me into sin. It's like, really, you're not going to fess up. You're not going to stand up and take responsibility for your actions. Sometimes we can get ourselves into situations and sometimes our circumstances get kind of outside of our control and we start blaming people. We play the victim, but we're not victims. God, he calls us not to be victims. What does he call us to be? He calls us to be conquerors. And we're, when we're playing the victim, we're not being conquerors. He's called us conquerors, meaning we can conquer any circumstance, any situation that we find ourselves in. Why? Because the conqueror is in control of the situation. He's going to make it work out together for good. Now look what he's blaming his sons for specifically. Why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you had still another brother? He's blaming them for telling the truth. That's what he's blaming them. This is your fault because you told the truth. They should have just deceived Joseph, just like they had been taught, right? This is just a corrupt mindset. It's completely wrong. And we can also fall into this as well. Maybe you found yourself in a hole. Maybe you found yourself in a dilemma and you start blaming people. And because they spoke the truth and maybe that dug you a deeper grave, now you're criticizing them. 
The moment we start criticizing people for telling the truth is the moment that we should realize we're living a lie. And that's where Israel's at. He's full of lies. He's full of deceit. He has a skewed view of reality. It's I'll do whatever I can to whoever I can as long as my circumstances are good. And he's persuading his sons once again not to be honest. Genesis chapter 43 Verse 7, but they said, the man asked us, they're talking about Joseph, Joseph is the man, the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him, according to these words, could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down? So they're having this dialogue in with, with, um, Israel and they basically say, there's no way we could have got around this. He asked us pointedly, do you have a father? Do you have a brother? They didn't know that he was going to say, okay, bring me your brother. There was no way for them to know this because Joseph was testing them. Obviously he knows they have a father. Obviously he knows that there's another brother. So they're explaining there was no way to get around this. Look at verse eight. Then Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you, and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him, from my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. So we see Judah puts himself out there. He says, hey, let's let's be logical dad okay if we don't send anyone back to egypt we're all gonna die okay so let's send benjamin back i'll put my name on the line if something happens to him you can you can take my life you can take me i'll be to blame for it you remember in chapter 42 reuben said you can kill my two sons if if benjamin doesn't come back but his father didn't trust reuben because reuben had slept with his concubine now We see Judah comes with a different approach and he's not saying I'll put my sons or my children out there. He's saying I'm going to put myself out there. If something happens to Benjamin, I'll take the blame. I'll lay down my life. He was being honorable. In John chapter 15 verse 13, it says greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. We see that character quality in Judah. He's willing to lay down his life for Benjamin. Genesis chapter 43, verse 10. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned this second time. So it appears that Judah was in agreement with Reuben back in the beginning, knowing that Simeon was taken, that they should go back immediately. But a lot of time has gone by because Israel wanted to just continue to eat the grain that was there and possibly take care of the situation later. Maybe never take care of the situation with Simeon. But we see here that the brothers, they wanted to go back initially for their other brother. And what stopped them? Israel. And Israel's selfishness, the father's selfishness literally limited the sons from doing what was right. As your selfishness ever limited someone from doing what was right. Now look at this. We got to remember who's calling the family to Egypt. It's God. But Israel is getting in the way from 
the nation, his sons, going to Egypt. He's literally interfering in what God has called this people group to do and where to go. Have you ever gotten in the way of the calling that God's placed on an individual's life? Jacob, he did. He did both of these things. Genesis chapter 43, verse 11. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and arise, go back to the man. So we see Israel operating in faith. Finally, he gives it up. Okay, yeah, take Benjamin, Judah. Your neck is on the line, but take him. Take all these other things too, pistachios and all myrrh and all these different things to bless him as a present. Hopefully, if we give him double the money back and we bless him with these things, he, he, he won't do anything else to kind of try to get us. Maybe it was just a, an oversight and the money, it was a, it was a mistake and that will be addressed in a little bit. But something really interesting here, if you look back at verse 12, when he says, take double money, that word double money, the money word is the same word as silver. Okay, now think about this. They're taking double the money. That would be two pieces per son. There's ten sons. Simeon's gone. Joseph's gone. This would be, scholars say, 20 pieces of silver. That's exactly the price that Joseph was sold for. 20 pieces of silver. I wonder if that caught their attention. Uh, we're bringing this money back, the same money that we received for the cost of Joseph and selling him into slavery. Interesting connection. Look at Genesis chapter 43, verse 14. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So we see God, he, sorry, uh, Israel, he prays that God would have mercy on them, but I don't think he realizes how much mercy that they actually need. Later on, we'll see that God does indeed answer this prayer. Pick it up in verse 15. So the men took that present and Benjamin, and they took double money in their hand and arose and went down to Egypt. And they stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready for these men will dine with me at noon. Then the man did as Joseph ordered and the man thought the men brought the men into Joseph's house. Now when now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house and they said it is because of the money which was re- returned in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that we, he may have a case against us and seize us to take us as slaves with our donkeys. Look at this. Joseph is having the brothers over for dinner. Okay, He's going to bless them, but they don't understand it. They misunderstand what Joseph's doing. They think that they're being brought into this dining hall to either be slaughtered or enslaved. It's a misunderstanding. 
we can have these same types of misunderstandings with the Lord, specifically when he tests us, because that's Joseph's purpose here. He's testing these brothers, as we'll see in a little bit. But when the Lord tests us, we assume sometimes that it's judgment, when really it's grace. And that's exactly what the brothers here are going to get. They won't get judgment. They'll get grace. Second point, his tests are his grace, not his judgment. His tests are his grace, not his judgment. They're assuming that something bad is going to happen to them when they don't realize, they don't understand the heart of their brother. Their brother, Joseph, is trying to deliver them. He's trying to restore them and expose them with their sin. He has this test for them so that he might bestow more grace on them. But we do this as well. Again, when the Lord tests us, we assume that he's judging us or he's out to get us or he's angry with us, but he tests us because he loves us, right? It's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 and 6. says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He tests the ones that he loves. And we get that confused sometimes. And when we fall into sin, when we fall short or do something that we're not supposed to do, immediately we think, oh man, God's going to be angry with me. God's going to judge me. I can't come to church. I can't read my Bible. I can't engage in relationship with them. I can't sit at the same table as him when that's not the case. That's not the truth at that table awaits grace and the very thing sin that keeps us from God is the very thing that's supposed to draw us to God when we fall short when we make a mistake yes God might test us to challenge us to grow us but we ought to draw near to him to be in communion with him because the only way to recover, the only way to be restored from sin is through communion with the Lord. We have this false idea sometimes when we're going through it that God's going to judge us. He's going to be angry with us. But the Bible talks so much about God's grace. Specifically, I want to point to one verse in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. See that? Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. God's grace is greater than our sin. Now he goes on to say, so shall we sin so that grace may abound? He goes, certainly not. Okay, we shouldn't continue to sin because God is gracious, but there's also the recognition when we sin, we shouldn't allow that sin to prevent us from pursuing God. And that's where these brothers are at in their relationship with Joseph because of what they think and the money being returned, they think Joseph is going to have judgment on them, but ultimately he has a feast waiting for them. He's going to bestow grace on them. Genesis chapter 43, verse 19. When they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. But it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it back in your hand and we have brought down 
other money in your hands to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. But he said, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to out to them. Now we see Joseph saying, no, no, I have your money. We know Joseph's kind of lying, so this is kind of uh, iffy. But but Joseph's like, no, 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 you're all good. Joseph, we know from the last chapter, he had the money put back in their sacks. But we talked about last week how the brothers were trying to purchase, trying to pay for the very bread, the very food that would save them. And salvation, something that saves us, salvation from the Lord, it can't be purchased, it can't be bought. But there's also another interesting connection here. They tried to give back to Joseph. You know, Joseph um, is a type of Christ. They tried to give back to Joseph, and what they gave to Joseph was given back to them, plus the bread. It's a picture of tithing, right? When God calls us to tithe, he asks, hey, give me the 10%. It's not that he needs the money. It's his uh, way of raising children, not funds. We've discussed this before, but so often when we give back to God, he blesses us not only with what we gave to him, but even more and more abundantly. And that's not always materially, but there's a promise in scripture in Malachi chapter three, that if we do give to God, he'll give back to us way more than we gave to him. And that's what's happening in the text. They tried to purchase this bread. Joseph gave them not only only the bread, but the money that they used to pay for the bread. Genesis chapter 43, verse 24. So the man brought them, so the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water. And they washed their feet and he gave their donkeys feed. Then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon. For they heard that they would eat bread there. So we see they're expecting judgment, but what do they get? They get a feast. They get bread. It's a picture of grace. We don't get what we deserve. We don't get what we think's gonna happen to us. We get, we get grace. God bestows grace on us. God's grace is incomprehensible. They don't understand why Joseph is doing this for them, but nevertheless, he is. Genesis chapter 43, verse 26. And when Joseph came home, They brought him the present which was in their hand in the house and bowed down before him to the earth. Then he asked them about their well-being and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And they answered, Your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. You would think that something would click, right? The very dream that Joseph had, two dreams back in Genesis chapter 37, that his brothers, and not only his brothers, but his mother and his father would bow down to him. While they're bowing down, he's asking them about their father. You would think one of these things would like, don't you know this is your brother? But they don't recognize it. And we see uh, Joseph had two dreams about his brothers bowing down to him. And now this is the fifth time that they've bowed down to to him. Remember, in Genesis chapter 37, the brothers questioned Joseph in his dreams and ultimately they tried to kill his dreams and selling him into slavery. But we discussed how because those dreams were from God, they couldn't be destroyed. They couldn't be killed in God. 
He's fulfilling them exceedingly abundantly above, I bet, what Joseph thought. Now five times they bow down and it's not over. Genesis chapter 43, verse 29. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin and his mother's son and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother, so Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out and he restrained himself and said, serve the bread. Now, Joseph, he finally sees his only complete blood brother, right? All the other brothers are half brothers. He has this special connection with Benjamin because he was the only one that not only was completely of the same blood, but he's the only one that didn't reject him. He's the only one that didn't betray him. And he has this intimate connection. I believe he's not only crying because he's reunited with Benjamin. This was also part of the test. Benjamin made it to Egypt. They didn't do something with this other favored son. So not only is he weeping because Benjamin is right there with him, I believe he's also weeping because his brothers are passing the test, just as he weeped in the last uh, scripture, the last passage chapter, when they confessed their sin and what they committed to, or sorry, against him. And and he overheard them because they didn't know that he spoke their same language. Genesis chapter 43, verse 32. So they set him a place by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews for this is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now this is uh, interesting when you look at culture, the Egyptians were extremely racist They were extremely racist. In fact, they believed that they came from gods. The Egyptians, all the people, they believed they came from gods. And they believed other people groups came from lesser origins. So anyone from another race, no, you're not sitting at the same table with the Egyptians because they're almost divine, if you will. So what we see here, there's three tables. You got Joseph at one table, you got the brothers at another table, and you got the Egyptians at another table. Three tables. All separated. Now, when you consider the Egyptian culture, who these people were and why God used them, it starts to click. It starts to make sense. There was a specific reason why God brought Israel out of Canaan and into Egypt specifically. And I'll explain more, but let me make the point. He's literally using this famine to fulfill his plan. Point number three God uses our famine. To fulfill his plan. God uses our famine to fulfill his plan. He uses our trials. He uses our tribulations. He uses everything to fulfill his greater plan. But this one specifically, it's pretty astonishing. It's pretty amazing when you look at the culture and why God would take them from one place and put them into another place. If you remember, back in Genesis chapter 15, along with one of the promises that God had made to Abraham, there's something very specific, very interesting that's being fulfilled right in this moment, in the process anyways. Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, it says, Then he, God, said to Abram, 
Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. Speaking of Egypt and also the nation whom they serve, I will judge afterward. They shall come out with great possessions. So God says this nation, Israel is going to be in Egypt for 400 years. They're going to be afflicted. But look what happens. Verse 15. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, but in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Amorites were Canaanites. Now we know from other passages that the Canaanites, the Amorites, they were corrupt people. They were idol worshipers. They were rapists. They've done all of these horrible things so far. But God, he's long suffering with the Amorites. He's literally giving them 400 years to repent and if they don't repent in 400 years, guess what? God's going to rid the, land, rid the land for his people. Now look at this. Canaan, corrupt, idolatrous nation, people groups, Amorites. God plucks Israel out of Canaan, this idolatrous people, and puts them into Egypt. Another people that, yes, is idolatrous, but will not intermingle with them because they think they're better than that. So their chances of facing corruption in Canaan are far greater than their chances of facing corruption in Egypt because the Egyptians think they're better than them. And that's exactly what's going to help them um, become who he's called them to become in Egypt because there's not the intermingling thing. They're going to be established in a place called Goshen that they might be holy, that they might be set apart, that they might not be corrupted by Canaan or by the Egyptians. So God is bringing them to Egypt through this famine to protect them. To make them a nation that's set apart. That wouldn't have happened in Canaan. They likely would have been corrupted in Canaan. Remember what happened in Shechem, right? Dinah gets raped and now Simeon and Levi are murderers. Nothing is good, good is happening in Canaan for the most part. So God, we see he's using this famine to fulfill his greater plan, specifically this promise that was made back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. But God, he also uses our famines. He uses our hard times. He uses suffering in our lives to fulfill his greater plan. No one likes suffering. No one really enjoys it. No one really welcomes it. But when you look at the difficulties in life and the suffering that's spoken of in the Bible, God uses it and he uses it for so many different things. He uses it to ultimately fulfill his greater plan. We know suffering comes from what? Suffering comes from from sin. Now, if there's not suffering in this world, then we don't look to a world that's better. We don't look to a world that's greater. And God uses suffering in so many different ways. Sometimes it's to teach us that there's something wrong with us and something needs to change in us. And he'll allow suffering there. And sometimes it's to teach us that there's something wrong with this world. That we would look for a better world. But God, he uses our famines. He uses our sufferings for his greater plan. It's not that God... Um, wants people to suffer. Jesus, when you look at his mission statement in Luke chapter 4, he came for the suffering. He came for the brokenhearted. He came for the captives. He came for all these different people groups that were suffering. So we know the Lord wants to restore the sufferer, but he uses the suffering in this present life for so many different reasons. One of, a, one of the big ones is to 
get our attention to help us realize that we're created for a better world and not the world that we exist in now. Genesis chapter 43, verse 33. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. Now we see that what Joseph does here is he puts the brothers in order from youngest to oldest. And they look at each other with astonishment. Why? How does he know how old we are? How does Joseph know who's the youngest and who's the oldest? A lot of them are similar in age. They're either thinking Joseph has some type of supernatural ability where he was able to do this. This couldn't have been by accident or he knows this family a little better than they realize. And we obviously know that that's the truth. That's the case. Genesis chapter 43, last verse, verse 34. Then he took servings to them from before him, but Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. Now, why was Benjamin serving five times more than the others? Was it because Joseph liked Benjamin the most? He probably did like him the most. He's the only one that didn't betray him, but that's likely not the reason. He's giving Benjamin more. He's blessing the favored child with more to test his brothers. You remember the coat of many colors or big sleeves, whatever it actually is. You remember how jealous the brothers got, how envious they were of Joseph. So much so that they hated him. What Joseph is doing here is he's testing the brothers to see if they've overcome this character quality of envy. Are they coveting what Benjamin has? Because Benjamin is getting five times more, he's getting more than they get. Have they overcome this envy? Are they still struggling with this jealousy? Or is this something that was in the past and now they're different men? Now they're new men. He was testing them for that specific reason to see if they overcame this specific character quality in God. As we mentioned in the beginning, he does that with us. He'll continue to test us in the same areas until we overcome that specific sin struggle or we get through that or over that specific character default. Point number four, you can't move on until you pass the test. You can't move on until you pass the test. Joseph is testing the brothers because this is a pivotal character quality that needs to be purged from them. And they're not moving on. He's not moving on with this whole thing until he knows. Until he knows they're becoming the men that God's called them to become. Until they have completely repented of all the sins that they've done in the past. Remember, Joseph's heart is that his brothers would be restored spiritually. But God does this with us so often. Will continue to test us in the same areas until we pass the test. If we fail the test, he'll probably give us the same test again. And even if we pass the test, he might test us in that specific area again just to see if we've truly attained that specific character quality. We mentioned in the beginning this 
reminder of, of grade school or school in general and how our teachers would test us to evaluate where we at, where we're at, if we're actually getting it, if we're actually learning the things that the teacher is teaching us. They're not testing us to fail us. No, they're testing us in hopes that the, that we'll pass the test. That's why the Lord tests us to reveal something to us, to produce something in us. But his hope, his heart is that we would pass the test. Did anyone skip any grades in here? Like first to third, fourth to fifth? No, me neither. Why? Because you can't get to second grade until you pass first grade. Unless you pass first grade with like flying colors and you go to third grade. That's rare. The point is, we are not getting to second grade. We're not getting to third grade. We're not getting to fourth grade until we pass the grade before us. So similar to our spiritual walks. God has these grades, if you will. Not these grading us. So don't take this out of context. But he tests us and tests us because he's trying to do what? He's trying to mature us. He's trying to get us to that next level. So eventually, ultimately, we look like who? We look like Jesus Christ. But if we don't pass the test in second grade, we're going to stay in second grade. We got to move from there. We got to move on from that. Not falling back into the same things. Not being entangled with the sins that have held us back in the past, but move forward, move beyond it. Become mature believers like God has called us to. That's what Joseph is doing with these brothers. This thing that you struggled with so bad with me, this envy, this jealousy, have you gotten over it? Have you overcome this thing? Because we're not moving on until you have overcome this thing. There's very probably very few few of us that that love taking tests that look like forward to it. when you were in school would you like I wanted I love taking tests test day yeah is that you Luke maybe no I'm kidding but in all sincerity there's very few of us that that look forward to taking tests but when we have a spiritual perspective and we see that God tests us to mature us to make us more like Jesus it does give us a different perspective and if we recognize that the Lord's testing us not because he's angry with us but because he has grace on us and he's trying to mature us then we can either look at tests and feel like I'm running into a wall and I'm just going to keep failing this test and failing this test and failing this test or we can believe what the scriptures say and that he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given us his divine nature. He's literally given us every single thing that we need to pass the test. And believing that, purposing to pass the test, purposing to get over the obstacles, over the humps, and come closer to the men and women that he's called us to be. That's exactly what's happening with these brothers. They're going to make up the 12 tribes of Israel, but they need to change before they can be the leaders that God has called them to. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for these examples and Lord, you, you, you tested these brothers through Joseph, and, and we know you didn't do it because you were mad at them. You did it because you loved them and you knew who they were going to become, that they were going to literally make up the tribes that would be your chosen people. Lord, and I pray that if 
there's anyone that's walking through a test in their life right now, that you would give them spiritual eyes to see, that they'd be able to take a step back and, and look at your sovereignty and recognize that, that you're doing something. And this is for something bigger. There's something that you're preparing them for. It's not suffering for suffering's sake. You got a reason, you got a purpose, and you truly do make all things work together for good. Lord, so I pray that you would allow us to have the faith, give us that extra measure of faith to to trust you that you have given us all the tools we need to pass the tests, and in that we would purpose to pass them. In Jesus' name, amen.